Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Look at any day's news output, and it's getting harder and harder to separate fact from fiction. Not because of fake news, but because the real news and the actions of so many cross the bounds of credible behavior. As someone recently pointed out after a few recent days of the usual craziness, if someone had submitted the real events as a script or story idea for West Wing or Homeland or even House of Cards, it would have been rejected as too absurd. The sad truth is that it's not, that some of these events are really happening and that we have to expand our mind to imagine what might happen going forward. This is in many ways the realm of fiction, or especially a kind of metafiction that my guest Lori Calhoun takes us to in her new novel, You Can Leave. Lori Calhoun is a philosopher and a cultural critic. She's the author of the previous book, We Kill Because We Can. She's also published dozens of essays, including one of the first critical essays of targeted killing. She holds degrees in chemistry and philosophy from the University of Colorado in Princeton. And it's my pleasure to welcome Lori Calhoun here to talk about her new novel, You Can Leave. Lori, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jeff. Great to have you here. Talk a little bit about the idea of using fiction, using a novel, as a way to take us deeper into the things that are happening today, the things that can be happening today. Sure. The idea, I think, sprang from a lot of the, as you said, almost surreal events happening in reality. And also my concern about what I talk about at great length in my previous book, We Kill Because We Can, the use of targeted killing and the use of this whole institutional apparatus to uh, eliminate people who appear to be dangerous to to people. So so I, de- I decided to investigate um, what what could happen given the tools available to people today. And there are a few premises underlying the novel. One is that people will use the tools which are available to them, including people in power. And we have lots of examples of this in history. So for example, the United States provided Saddam Hussein with chemical weaponry and technology, and he went, he went ahead and used them. So um, that's one premise. Another premise is that we have uh, now normalized assassination. So the CIA is currently killing people using drones, and it's considered, they've rebranded it as an act of war, so it's called targeted killing. They use missiles. They actually acknowledge that they're doing it now after about a 10-year period when it wasn't acknowledged. And so, I, you know, I, I wonder now what the new covert ops could, could look like. So You Can Leave actually investigates this sort of idea that we have these tools available, that we, there is a black budget, and that there are covert operations, which must, of necessity, be worse than what we're do, what is acknowledged publicly. So, um, so those are some of the premises behind, behind the work. And I, I talk about the use of tools unique to the modern world, um, including uh, pharmaceutical uh, products, which have taken off since the launch of Prozac, and also the use of surveillance, which we now know, thanks to um, a variety of whistleblowers, is being used all over the place in all sorts of places that we can't even really imagine. So it's a it's a very disturbing book. It's, I suppose, um, I should ask you, since you, since you <laughs> read it, uh, uh, what what you would say about the overall 
structure of it, but I think that in a way it's a tale of moral horror, which, exa- which examines what can happen when bad actors are given too much power. Right. Not only what happens when bad actors are given too much power, but what happens when that power is there that sometimes it's hard not to be a bad actor given the the framework and the reality that they operate in. And I want to come back to something you mentioned a moment ago, which is this idea of whatever we know of how bad things are, that inevitably there's got to be a lot more that we don't know and it's got to be a whole lot worse. Talk about that. Sure. Well, part of the book is is discussing something which we know actually happened in reality, which is uh, MK Ultra, where the CIA was was covertly poisoning people. I mean, they were drugging them using various psychedelic drugs and who knows what else. Uh, and so this actually happened in reality. So so I talk about the case of a victim who, in effect, has has suffered this sort of treatment and. Um, it's scary because these things do happen because the people in these institutions think on some level that they're doing the right thing. I think during the Cold War there was more of a there was more of a pretext for it. You know, they thought, oh, we have to we have to destroy the enemy or they will destroy us and the communists are evil and we have to, you know, figure out who the defectors are. So this was the rationale behind behind this program, I believe. Um, but now that the Cold War is over, you know, these tools still exist and they can be used uh, to eliminate dissidents. And I wonder, for example, about a lot of things. One is why everyone in the mainstream media seems to agree. And whenever something, the opportunity arises to go drop more bombs on yet another country, nearly everyone seems to agree that it's a good idea. So I wonder where the actual dissidents are. Uh, they're, they're certainly not covered in the mainstream. Uh, we've had a few cases, such as Julian Assange, who is currently being gagged. Uh, we had uh, Michael Hastings, who died in a single car accident in 2013. I mean, it, it's kind of eerie that the people who are really strong voices uh, to oppose this um, military takeover of, of our entire republic uh, somehow always seem to disappear. <laughs> so, so, uh, so I wonder whether some of these tools could be used uh, to eliminate not just the communists from the Cold War, but, but people who are perceived as dangerous today. Mm-hmm. One of the things that, that's particularly interesting is the mindset that, that overlay is all of this, that people are willing to just believe so blindly in what they're being told in terms of, of, of what the military is doing. That's absolutely right. And I think that if someone, you know, let's say from a different planet or a different time, looked at, at the scene in the Middle East and the havoc that has been wreaked on the pe- on the people living there, that they would be appalled at the number of people who have been killed, the number of people who have had to leave their countries, the people who have been maimed, the people who have been traumatized. I mean, it would, it's really quite an appalling toll if, if you take it all together. And then you and then you have to ask yourself, how can it be that the populace once again, you know, now in the case of the conflict with Iran, 
uh, there are people who are calling for war, and there are people who continue to call for war against North Korea, even though there appears to have been a, a detente between South and North Korea. So it's it's kind of a, a cultural insanity of sorts that people get so caught up in this way of looking at the world that they can't step outside of it, and they just assume automatically, reflexively, there's a conflict, we have to go to war. The interesting thing is that that attitude is not something that is indigenous just to the U.S., that there are many of those in other parts of the world that come to it with a similar attitude. That's right. And I wrote a book about this, actually. It's called War and Delusion. Um, And I think the subtitle is A Critical Examination. That book examines the entire paradigm of just war theory and how people have been hoodwinked into believing that all of these wars of aggression are actually done within the rubric of, of justice. And it's a very seductive view. We have a long history of the noble soldier, the, the honorable warrior. And somehow people have confused that whole history to, to conclude in the end that anything the military does is automatically good. So they don't look at the actual consequences of these military incursions, the millions of people who have been slaughtered. Um, the the multi-millions of people who have been maimed, harmed, traumatized, who have been left bereft of their loved ones. Instead, they, they just, they use this, this construct that actually derives from just war theory, which is that our intentions were good. So as long as we have good intentions, then this is supposed to absolve us from everything negative that happened as a result of what we did. But the, the reality is it's a huge act of self-deception to believe that you have no responsibility for the deaths you cause just because you were only trying to kill evil people. And, oh, you know, it looks like we accidentally killed, you know, millions of innocent civilians in Vietnam, for example, or in Iraq um, and the rest of the Middle East. Uh, but but people have been swept into this view, and and they derive a sense of satisfaction from believing that they're allied with the good guys against the evil, and so they're willing to bang the drums to war, to wave the banner um, in favor of invasion whenever the opportunity arises. And as I said in in my uh, it's not my previous book, my book before my previous book, I, I examine that in great detail. I think it's a, a case of of mass deception. It's also always a reaction to previous wars. I mean, it, it was a reaction to, to the argued nobility of the Second World War that in many ways justified so much of what we did in Vietnam and the reaction to that where everything was wrong and then an overreaction to that that led us into so many other incursions since. Well, that's right. And another problem is just a general... Uh, I would call it amnesia, where people don't really fully understand the acts that led up to a particular event. For example, the terrorist attacks of 911 were in in effect caused by the Gulf War of 1991. But because people had already been convinced that the 1991 Gulf War was a just war, they just assumed that when the terrorist attacks occurred on September 11, 2001, that in fact, you know, time starts right now. We have been attacked without any reason. There's no other explanation other than that these people are intrinsically evil. And uh, and then everything took off from there for the last 17 years. has just been nonstop carnage. Talk a little bit about this notion of, of chemical warfare, of using chemical technology 
and and how you've woven it into into this story. Okay, well, I do believe that people use the resources available to them, and they will use the best resources available to them. And the scenario I've sketched out involves the use of weapons which cannot be identified as weapons because the person being targeted actually convicts herself of insanity if she attempts to explain what is happening to her. So it turns out that we do have these, these chemicals available. As I said, CIA was using them in MKUltra. The question is, you know, do they continue to use them? Um, there's this, in fact, rather disturbing community of people who call themselves targeted individuals, and they say that they're being um, tortured with various uh, radio frequency uh, apparatuses and electronic devices, and some of what they say is certainly possible. I mean, there certainly have been a lot of experiments, um, you know, by DARPA involving mind control and all sorts of things, and, and in fact... It could be happening in some cases, but it's very difficult to assess because there are so many of them right now that it looks like they may be feeding off each other's reports on blogs, etc. And so you don't actually know if they're doing this. But what we do know is that when these two new technologies are developed, they are tested on people, usually um, involuntarily. I mean, people are not signing up to be tortured, obviously. And so... Uh, these techniques have to be tested somehow, and uh, the victims could be people who have proven to be troublemakers in this or that context. And, and uh, the chemicals can be used in the way that larger weapons can't be used. So they can be used to, to target individual dissidents, and that's what you know, the book sketches out. So why is that, why is that scary? Um, because as I said before, it looks like we have this weird homogenization of thought across all of the mass media, all the pundits, all the talking heads, most of academia, all, it seems like everyone's a warmonger. So, so it looks like it, it's possible that the dissidents are, are being somehow eliminated. Now, they could be eliminated by other, you know, less heinous means just through the usual uh, hoops that you have to jump through when you when you go through academia, for example, um, and also just through a vetting process, as happens in the selection of government bureaucrats. So you have always the government bureaucrats always seem to agree, and that's because the people who do well are doing what their superior uh, personnel believe to, to be good. So you have cases like um, the woman who's been nominated to be the head of the CIA was involved in the torture program. Okay, so then she has this whole list of people who support her within the, within the establishment. And so... So the question is, um, can these can these tools be used, and why would they be superior to other tools? And what and the the stratagem I have created is one in which the people who perpetrate the heinous acts described are rendered invisible by them. So so that you can never actually identify who any of the perpetrators are. So they're all anonymous and they're they're protected in the way that drone operators are protected when they kill people thousands of miles away. No one can really identify who was responsible for the deaths when a, when a whole slew of civilians is slaughtered. All we know is that a missile came down, killed a bunch of people, and everything else is kept kind of under covers. We don't, although the, the strikes are acknowledged uh, publicly, we don't know the details of who actually perpetrated the acts. And the same thing could happen with this sort of tool. And I worry because we 
We now have micro drones, uh, which could be used to deliver chemical substances to wage these micro wars against people um, deemed, I suppose, dangerous on, on some level, um, usually ideologically. It's all about creating what somebody might refer to as the perfect crime. That's right. That's exactly right. Um, so that's <laughs> that's what this is. So so you notice you may have noticed that the narrator just sort of disappears at the end. We don't actually know what happened to the narrator. We don't know if she was locked into an insane asylum. We don't know if she was suicided. We don't know if she gave up and you know took her own life. We don't know if she died in an accidental. Um, in an accidental car wreck, we actually have no idea what happened to the narrator. She just sort of disappears. And uh, that's that's the eerie aspect of these sorts of crimes, which probably do occur. I mean, we know that one out of three murders in the United States goes unsolved. That's one thing we know. We know that there are hitmen. We know uh, that only people with money can afford hitmen. And, you know, so there are all sorts of, of possibilities you can spin out. Of course, it's very dark and very disturbing. And in effect, in effect this is, a, as I said, an investigation of the nature of moral horror. Um, it's the, the precise scenario I, I, I have created involves an, one individual who's, who's just psychotic and then all these other people who, co- who go along with him. So it's similar in some ways to the Holocaust, where you have probably a handful of genuinely psycho- you know, psychotic or sociopathic people, and then everyone else gets sort of wheeled in through corruption. The other interesting aspect about it in terms of, of people's attitude about it and acceptance of this, this sort of horror is that because they have lost faith in all other institutions, and most of those other institutions don't work, that the whole business of killing is one of the few institutions that is successful. And and I think it's part of what the draw is. Yeah, that's true. And unfortunately, the whole idea that killing people isn't acceptable way of resolving disputes has has been completely accepted you know when the the saddest part of all of of barack obama's administration was when he uh assassinated u.s citizens without indictment or trial and called these acts of war i mean that was like the worst thing i mean it it was really revolutionary and people haven't recognized this yet i mean hopefully they will start to wake up as Trump, the Trump administration does this more and more, but it was Obama who did this. And it's a very frightening, frightening idea that you can just decide behind closed doors whom to eliminate, go do it, and then have no one, virtually no one, uh, protest it. I mean, it, it, just, it just was accepted. And so once you, once you pass that, once, once you've past that political hurdle where, where people are no longer even rising up against what you're doing, then basically the door has been flung open to any and everything. Mm-hmm. You know, and it makes the individual acts that much smaller, that much more hidden by comparison when you put it alongside talk about nuclear weapons and, 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 and larger warfare, people lose sight of what's really going on. That is absolutely true. I noticed right after Trump uh, assumed the presidency that people just stopped really 
having much interest in, in the drone wars because they were worried about a much bigger problem, which right. is nuclear holocaust. And uh, it, it, you're right. Like one thing leads to another where your, your, your attention is diverted to the point where you focus on the most pressing issue at hand. And while that turns out to be the specter of nuclear holocaust right now, not the fact that we're assassinating thousands of brown-skinned men on suspicion of possible complicity in future possible terrorist acts. Talking about the, the KGB acts that we've seen where chemical weapons have been used. Well, we know of the we know that there have been that there were defectors, um, there were double agents, there were triple agents, you know, going back and forth between the communists and the capitalists and and both the KGB and the CIA developed neurotoxins to be able to basically just wipe out the brain of, of the enemy so that they couldn't report on anything that happened. Um, you know, you have to wonder about this poor fellow in, in North Korea, Varmbier, was that his name? Right. Ola. Yeah, okay. So you have to wonder what happened with him. So he had some sort of stroke, who knows? I mean, we don't really know. But these tools definitely exist. And uh, <clears throat> the question is, what happens when when... I mean, it's hard to it's hard to imagine how how they could be used in a in a method that is acceptable. I mean, I think they're kind of intrinsically evil, and yet they were developed within the framework of the U.S. government, and so they're paid for by U.S. taxpayers. and And many people they just assume reflexively that oh, the government is good, they're looking out for us. I don't really want to know what's going on as long as I'm safe and you know my family's here safe, then then that's okay. But what they don't realize is the very existence of the black budget implies that crimes are being committed. And um, this is long after the Cold War has ended. I mean, you can say, okay, we were, we were worried about this existential threat of communism during, throughout the Cold War. No such threat exists at this point. There, there are these factions of non-state actors who only have weapons when they're provided to them by states. And that's about the extent of, of the immediate danger in our world. Now, we, we see people, you know, drumming up the Iran conflict and the North Korean conflict and, and saying, oh, all these things can happen. But the reality is that uh, nothing even approaching the Cold War is going on right now. And, and yet people have that same very defensive attitude that we have to use whatever means we have to prevent, you know, the end of the world is how they look at it. Well, it's also the paranoia that is endlessly chinned up about that. Definitely. Talk a little bit about the technology itself. And, and you have a background, as, as I recall, in, in chemistry and, and how that relates to what you've incorporated into the, to this story. Okay, sure. I, I mean, I talk about how the delivery systems of chemical warfare can be used and directed toward individuals. And again, I think this can be done... Um, more and more. The story is set in the 1990s, which is before the drone age. But now with the advent of drone technology and the uh, production of smaller and smaller drones and their exportation all over the world, um, these drones can be weaponized using uh, smaller lethal means. And the smallest lethal means there are are chemical means because they're invisible and a very, you know, very tiny amounts of some of these neurotoxins can be used to completely wipe out 
um, either an individual or a family or a household or, a, you know, even a, a village of people. And uh, <clears throat> the chemical warfare delivery systems, again, these were developed with the idea that they were needed in, in the event of some existential conflict with the USSR, which of course no longer exists. But the, the technology now exists, and so it can be used. Um, you know, you can vaporize these, um, use these chemicals. They're invisible. You, we've seen some of this in Syria. We don't know exactly the details of what has gone on in Syria, but um, dozens of people in some cases have, have been exposed to these, these agents. And so, again, the, the fundamental idea is that we have these means, they exist, there are people who have access to these means, and I think there's some chance that these people will use them because people tend to use what is available to them. Talk about that, because that really is the historical fact, that, that as weapons come along, as they're available, that, that there are people, the military, can't help but use them. Yeah, that's right. You probably remember the famous, infamous, I should say, quote by Madeleine Albright, who apparently asked Colin Powell at some point, you know, we have this great military, so why can't we use it? Okay, so basically saying, you know, it's just sitting there uh, inert. <laughs> so, so why can't we just go pound a bunch of countries, which of course now we're doing. And uh, she successfully, I believe, persuaded Clinton or was one of the actors who persuaded Clinton to to get involved in the conflict in Kosovo. So, yeah, people have the weapons, and they feel like um, if they aren't used, they're somehow wasted. So the, they don't really think of these weapons as deterrents, except perhaps in the case of nuclear warheads, where people genuinely fear retaliation, which would lead to mutually assured destruction, or MAD was the, was the theory back then. Um, but in the case of, of lower level, more conventional or even chemical and biological weapons, people have them and they, they will use them um, and they feel justified in doing so because they exist, which is very bizarre because in many cases they were, they were invented by people who were not necessarily beacons of morality. They, they were trying to figure out how to destroy people, and they figured out how to do it. And now that they exist, there are other people who will just assume that these are tools in the toolbox to be used. Are we going to see a resurgence of chemical and biological weapons, do you think? I think we might. And the reason, again, is because we have these delivery systems. We now have drones, and it's going to be very difficult to control the use of drones by, by both sides of every conflict and in, up to and including the members of terrorist factions. So we already know that ISIS has been using drones. And in a way, it was kind of a ridiculous thing to develop, to develop micro drones and smaller drones, because these are so easy for anyone and everyone to use that they can be used against the people who created them. But that's always been the case. I mean, we tend to create these things and then they spread around the world and then we talk about the the horror of the possibility of someone using them. Uh, <clears throat> but I believe that this, this will come, to, come back to haunt us. And not only the existence of the technology, but the spread of the idea that assassination somehow is an acceptable form of warfare. That, as I said before, was a revolutionary paradigm shift, um, which which was affected by the Barack Obama administration, this, this idea that somehow uh, assassination is no longer wrong as long as you call it targeted killing. 
one of the things you create in You Can Leave is this new mob. Talk about that. Okay, so again, it's it's a case where uh, you have a lot of people who can become complicit in evil without even being fully aware of it. Okay, so they're asked to do their little part, and everything is information is shared on a need-to-know basis. So, so I I show in the book how a lot of people who are not necessarily evil can be brought together to do small parts of what ends up being um, a heinous operation. And I think that we have precedents for this. You know, for example, in Nazi Germany, I'm pretty sure that most German citizens were not psychotic, and yet they got sort of swept up into the whole um, idea that what they were doing was right. I mean, if you think about it, there's nothing more surreal than the Holocaust. I mean, if it didn't happen, no one could make that up. It's 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 preposterous. And I talk about a similar case, but it's on a, on a smaller level. So the victim of You Can Leave, in a way, is like a Holocaust victim, but in a way, it's kind of worse, because she can't actually talk to anyone. And the people in, in the concentration camps had each other, you know, as reassurance that, in fact, this was reality. As surreal as it was, it was reality. They were there with other people. And so... Um, so I talk about in the book how people can, can be swept into it, and then in their effort to basically live with themselves, um, to continue their lives as before, they can just pretend that the whole thing was fictional and, um, and, and go on with their lives as though nothing ever happened, even when they may have questions about what they have been asked to do and have agreed to do in exchange for money. And finally, Laura, talk a little bit about the process of writing this in the environment that we're in today and the way in which the reality of it and the potential reality of it becomes more real or must have become more real to you with each passing day of writing. Yeah, it's a frightening tale, I have to say, because um, it does describe scenarios which could very well be taking place um, or may take place in the future. We don't know. But they're all possible. And it's it's a very disturbing work, I have to admit. It's, it's very dark. And uh, I recorded the audiobook for this. And when I got through the whole recording and listened to the whole thing, I was like, wow, this is a tale of moral horror. That's what this is. But it's sort of what can happen when you have this very bizarre cultural environment where people are not really engaging and they're kind of handing everything off to the the authorities and letting them determine everything and all they're doing is paying so they're paying their taxes and then letting some small group of people decide what to do and you know if they decide to kill US citizens using drones okay i guess that's okay because they said it's okay so we have a we have a very sad situation in the United States today where um, there's you know the the Anti-war movement, for one, is was very um, was very much diminished, I think, by the election of Obama, which is really too bad. I mean, I voted for Obama, and I expected him to be the the peace president that he campaigned to be, that he said he would be on the campaign trail. Um, but you know, eight years of Obama kind of really took its toll on the anti-war uh, movement because people just became accustomed to giving him the benefit of the doubt. And now we have we have Trump who has inherited all of the executive excesses assumed by Obama, and it's only going to get worse from here. This is another assumption of the of the novel is that people don't cede power. Once they have power, they they hold on to it, and in fact try to ex, try to exceed 
what they were given. Um, so, <clears throat> so if you think one thing is happening, probably what's happening is much worse, um, just because that seems to be the tendency of power-seeking individuals. And of course, we're constantly distracted by whatever the next shiny object is, including the anti-war movement. Well, that's true, and I also think that we're, we're, our attention is being constantly diverted by these bizarre outbursts about personalities. I mean, I, you can say what you like about Trump, but I, I really think that some, like this whole Russia thing, I don't know, the Russiagate uh, controversy has really caused people to ignore what is really being done by the Trump administration all over the world. And so, so this, um, it's like a diversion. I mean, it's really a red herring, a literal red herring. Uh, and people, as a result, are not paying attention. So they just, um, they assume that the military has their best interests in mind. And so if they say we have to go bomb Syria, then I guess we have to go bomb Syria without even thinking about the fact that it didn't, what, what we did in Syria, we had already done in Libya, which was a failure, and we had already done it in Afghanistan, and we had already done it in Iraq. It was all a big failure. I mean, if there were any rational assessment of what we have done, it would be, it would have to conclude that we need to do something different because the same thing does not work. We've established that. Lori Calhoun, her novel is You Can Leave. Lori, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks for having me, Jeff. It was thank nice talking with you. Thank you.